Thanks, Tanner. Uh, it is always fun to be at uh, Redemption Hill. It's one of our favorite places to come. Sometimes we slip in the back and at the uh, coming from another church and try to get in as much opportunity to be with you as we can. I, uh, I love being with Tanner and Marsha and John and Lee and John and Teresa and Dan. You've got an incredible team here. And to be able to walk in this morning, feel the energy and the vision and the passion, uh, it's just so encouraging. So I want to jump in by taking you into to my world just a little bit. Uh, ten years ago, as Tanner said, that we moved from a church that we had planted and been with for 21 years in Louisville, Kentucky, a city of one million, to Concord, New Hampshire, to a state of one million. And uh, it was moving a son of the south up to the north, to the northeast, after being in Louisville for 21 years and prior to that in Knoxville, Tennessee for seven years. And uh, whenever we moved, there were, it was getting acclimated, of course, to the whole New England vibe and culture. And not only that, but my very first appearance before the congregation, even before they voted to invite us to become their pastor at Centerpoint there in Concord, New Hampshire, about an hour north from here, um, I uh, shared a little bit and I started by saying this, hi, my name is David Butler and I'm a Yankee fan. And when I said that, it wasn't that kind of a smattering of booze. It was a hoot and holler room full of booze of about three, four hundred people at that particular gathering. And I can remember thinking, uh, this, is gonna, this is probably not going to turn out good. I mean, it's done. It's over. I'm out of here. Well, long story short, uh, we had an incredible six-year run there and absolutely fell in love with that church and that people and uh, new love for New England and all things uh, that have to do with New England in terms of the culture. And we begin this transformation in our own personal lives. I begin to realize that when you go to Dunkin' Donuts, when you say, I want a regular coffee, that means cream and sugar. Uh, and I'm not a coffee drinker, but I learned that along the way. And I, I learned certain things about what they, you know, their mannerisms and what they would wear. When I moved from Louisville, Kentucky, and this was in the wintertime, uh, I had on a pair of nice dress, casual slacks, a pair of uh, tasseled loafers. I wore a leather jacket. I thought I was looking pretty good. And I walked into that gathering there of are the elders, and there were about six or seven of them. It was on, in a January cold, minus 10 degree day, and I walked in that room. They're all just totally dressed like they know that this is the way it is in New England. I want to tell you that after just about a month there, I haven't worn the tassel shoes in six years. I want you to know that I don't wear a leather coat I wear something from North Face or, you know, I, 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 am, I, I, I realize the key is getting a pair of warm socks and a pair of Merrells or something like that being prepped for the time. And this transformation began to take place. What really has happened, though, since moving to Boston has even gone a little bit further. My brother, who is six years younger and about three or four inches taller than I am, he is a Yankees fan to the core. And last year he came up and he said, let's go down to Yankee Stadium and see the Yankees and Red Sox play. I said, deal. And he doesn't know anything about what's going on inside of me. So we're at the Yankee game. The Red Sox are actually pummeling the Yankees at this particular game. And he looks over at me and he sees this. He's, he's almost, what, what is, 
What's going on here? He's saying, it's not like you're upset about this. In fact, I saw you almost cheer when the Red Sox just scored. What's going on? And we're having this conversation back and forth. And he said, you haven't gone over to the other side, have you? You haven't switched? I said, oh, no. I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm with you. And then he said, no, you're not. No, 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 no. It's happened, hasn't it? You have become a Red Sox fan. I didn't say anything, but he knew. I had gone through this transformation from a son of the South, Kentuckian, to a New Englander Red Sox fan. And so, uh, <laughs> there was this transformation that took place. Now, I will tell you this, that still today, when I talk to my friends in Concord and other places, they say, David, you will never be a New Englander because you weren't born here. Uh, you've got, and he said, it would take you 35 years before we actually think that you're maybe one of us. We love you, but it's going to take a while. But the transformation over these last almost now 10 years from, like I said, son of the South from Kentucky to this guy who absolutely loves New England, who absolutely loves following the Boston Red Sox, Mookie and JB Jr. and all the rest, something has happened inside of me. Now, I haven't started talking like them. As you can tell, I still have a sound that says you're not from around here. I get that. But something has taken place. There's been a transformation inside of me. And it's still in process. Still in process. Now, I use that as a way of introducing you and once again reminding you that for those of us who have come to that place where through God's grace in our life, we were drawn to him. And by his prompted of love extended toward us, I said yes to his invitation to receive Christ to come into my life. That was when I was 14 years old, and that's been well over five decades ago. And so whenever I think about Christ in my life, that's a beautiful thought. Having Christ in my life, I can't think of anything better than that. And if you're here just kind of exploring this whole thing of the Christian life, having Christ in your life, I'm just telling you, it doesn't, that you can't imagine any better life than that. Uh, but here's the, here's the challenge. Having Christ in my life is, is, is not enough. It's not enough. Believing all the right things, it, it's, not en- it's not enough. Knowing that when my life on this earth comes to an end and I slip into eternity, that I'll have a place in heaven that is promised to me, that I'll be free from all of this, that's not enough. Because having Christ in my life, believing the right things, having a destination called heaven, it's, it, it's far more than, there's more to it than just that. Because you see, there is the beauty and the wonder, not of Christ in my life, but is the beauty and the wonder of Christ becoming my life. That's the goal. That's the vision that God has for my life. And so it wasn't just a matter of saying yes to Jesus, the coming of my life. It was saying, I inviting you to come into my life to begin that work in me so that your life actually literally becomes my life. That the life Jesus would live, as Dallard Willard says, would become the life I live as if he were I. Having Jesus in your life, that's great, but it's more than believing the right things, behavior modification, having a place called heaven that one day you'll go. 
there is this beauty, majesty, this flow of his life in your life becoming your life. Now, with that in mind, I want to back up for just a minute. I want to just help you gauge, and we're going to do this all the way through the message this morning. I'm going to invite you to put some kind of understanding and take a good hard look at your own personal life as to where you are personally right now in terms of Christ in your life, but not just that, far more importantly, Christ becoming your life. Now, with that in mind, I want to pray, and then we'll dive right into where we're headed. Father, we thank you for moments like this, sacred moments, in the sense that we're, we're not having to be caught up in the hurried pace of our everyday life. We're not having to be distracted by all the things and the demands on our life. We have this time to allow your voice to speak above all the other voices as we've already experienced today. And so now may your word become living and impactful in our lives today so that all that you've called and created us to be in Christ can become more and more who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to ask you just to fill in the blank here for a moment. You think about it for just a second. Here's the blank, and I'll put it up on the screen here. It says, I'm in a state of blank spiritual growth. I'm in a state of blank spiritual growth. How would you fill that blank in? Would you fill it in with this statement? I'm in a state right now of rapid spiritual growth. I'm seeing Christ more and more become who I am. I see his life taking over my life. Christ is in my life, but wow, he is coming through in my own personal life. Rapid spiritual growth. How we, well, perhaps there's another option. Instead of rapid, maybe it would be reasonable. I see some signs. It's not anything really outstanding, but I see a disposition that's changed. I'm, I'm walking away from certain things that used to be very much a part of who I was that no longer I'm just kind of tossing to the side. And you're seizing, seeing some reasonable spiritual growth in your life. Well, there's another option. That option would be, well, right now I'm not seeing a whole lot of anything, but I'm pretty content with the way things are. I, I, don't, really, uh, you know, I don't really get too excited about uh, certain things that maybe I should be excited about, but I kind of like where I am right now, and it, it's pretty easy to be where I am. And then the final possible option to fill in that blank is, uh, I'm in a state of stalled spiritual growth. And by stalled, what I mean is this. You're frustrated. Uh, you're struggling. You're trying to move forward, and it just seems like every time you start to move forward, you just kind of take two steps back. I want you to think about those four options and try to peg yourself somewhere in that in terms of evaluation. And we're going to do a lot of that this morning. Because you see, disciple-making begins, especially when you start thinking about imitation and about transformation, it begins by allowing others, those you're seeking to disciple, look at your life and say, wait a second, wait a second, there is something about you that reminds me of Jesus. And so today, we're going to just focus in on Him becoming your life. And with that in mind, we're going to spend our time this morning in probably the most helpful, prolific writing, it's an ancient writing, on spiritual formation and spiritual growth and moving towards maturity as a Christ follower, where Christ is becoming your life. It's a very short read. It only has 95 verses. It was written by Paul 
to a group of relatively young Christ followers at a church that was just recently planted, and it's some kind of an obscure little city that was a cluster of cities along a Lycus River, and he has never been there. Epaphras was probably the one that planted that church, and he's got one shot at writing to them about this, to them about what it means to absolutely allow Christ to become your life, about spiritual formation. I don't know of any other writing that speaks into this more than Colossians. And that's where we're going to make our way through this morning, okay? And I want to begin with Colossians 1, 24 through 29. So just follow along. This kind of sets it up for us, reminds us. Here's what Paul writes. He tells this new relatively young group of Christ followers, as they're trying to figure out what the Jesus life is all about, he says, here's what I take joy in, my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm willing to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. What is he saying? Right from the very beginning, he's saying that if you're going to dare to follow Christ and Christ become your life, it's going to cost you something. There's going to be some uncomfortable moments. It's going to be at times very demanding. You may not have to die a martyr's death, but you need to live a martyr's life to where there is death to self, which brings his life out of you. And so it's going to cost you something. It's going to demand something from you. Of which, he says, I have become to this church. Here's what God has called me uniquely to do. He's given me these gifts according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you. This is all about me leveraging all God has called and gifted me to do for you. Here's what that is. The specific thing is to make the word, the message of God, fully known. What is that message? Here it is. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. I want to tell you something that up to this point in time, this is my assignment. I want to tell you something that nobody else has known before. Here it is. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, that would be outsiders, that would be pagan, that would be people far from God, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This has huge implications, he says, for everyone and even outsiders who don't know anything about Jesus. Here it is. Here's the secret. I'm revealing it to you, which is Christ in you the hope, the confident expectation that you will see his shining greatness become the reality in your personal life. Him, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, bringing everybody's attention with insight from God above, and here's why, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And this is why I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, my whole life is about revealing this wonderful, beautiful now, everybody should know truth, and that is, guess what? Christ, in all of his fullness and beauty and majesty, can come live in you. Not only that, his shining greatness can become your very life. He says, that's what it is. That's the essence of the Jesus life. Now with that in mind, I want to remind you of a very simple truth that John Ortberg very succinctly described. Look up on the screen. The most important task of your life is not what you do, 
but who you become. Who you become. Let me see if I can illustrate that this way. Uh, God has this vision for your life. If you've invited Christ to come to your life, this vision is that his life, the life of Jesus, the Jesus life, would become your life. And that all that he is in terms of his purity and his generosity and his compassion would all flow through you. And he has even described that Jesus even said, hey, I, I want you to have not just this obsession with perfectionism. No, no, that's not the goal. But I want you to have this obsession with my life becoming your life. That's his goal. And then here is perhaps where our life is. Let me ask you, maybe we need to make this as a mass confession this morning. How many of you see a gap between who Christ has called you to be and him, him becoming your life, and where you are? Any gaps? Anybody see any gaps? Yeah, we do, don't we? We see all those gaps. Well, let me explain a little bit over the way that that kind of works out in your life and my life. I've got a rubber band here. I'm not for sure that you can see it, but imagine it this way if you can. Over here on this side, of course, is the life that God has called you to live in Christ. Over here is the way the world just kind of pulls on you, and you just kind of move it in this direction. And you're constantly trying to move towards this, but this is constantly pulling you back this way. And what what we're hearing and what Paul is saying is this is who you are and this is where you are and you want to move closer to this. What happens if the rubber band becomes too tight and stretched too far for too long? It breaks and it's ruined. And sometimes people get so overwhelmed with the challenge of being a Christ follower and they get caught up in legalism and they say, I can't do it, I'll never be able to do it, and I quit. But if we put the band-aid, uh, the rubber band back where it's loose and it's slack, there's no tension in it. And there's no real energy to it. And you're just kind of mediocre and there's no real challenge to it. And that's not where you want to be either. Where you just kind of go along to get along. And yes, I have Jesus in my heart. But, and yes, I'm going to heaven when I die. And yes, I try to do good things. But that's as far as it gets. And there's just really no, you've kind of lowered expectations. And you decide this is as good as it gets. What's important for you and I to understand is that tension, a proper tension. Knowing that this is not who we're called to be. This is not who I am. This is who God has called me to be in Christ and for his life to become in me. That tension is never going to go away. But that tension is what causes us to continually have the energy to develop, to grow, to become, and to move toward. So we can't get rid of the tension. It's not going away. But it's there to cause us to say, I'm not giving in to this. I'm pursuing this. I I want this more than anything else that I could ever imagine. I want this life in Christ. And I want to move towards that in every way that I can. And that's what Colossians is all about. And what Colossians does for you, chapter after chapter, it talks about being rooted in him. It talks about being built up in him. It talks about being strengthened in him. It's all about in Christ and Christ becoming your life. And then he starts, the writer Paul starts giving us some of the signs are, are, are some of the ways to assess whether or not we can see progress in our life moving towards the life in Christ and Christ's life becoming ours. And we want to look at perhaps the best way to assess whether or not Christ is becoming your life. 
So with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to take just a few minutes. I want to invite you through to walk you through some revealing questions. Before that, here's some assumptions that I want you to understand. Some assumptions. Here they are. Number one is this. Moving toward maturity as a Christ follower should be the norm, not the exception. Moving toward maturity is a journey, not a destination. It's a pursuit. A pursuit. And finally, moving toward maturity is about closing the gap between who I am and who God has created me to be in Christ. Now let me preface what we're going to look at with another simple statement. Here it is. Here's the acid test, the most prolific, important test regarding your own personal spiritual progress. Here it is. The acid test of spiritual maturity is how you relate to others. You see, the quality of your spiritual life is no better than the quality of your relationships with others. The way you connect with others reflects the, the, the current condition of your connection with God. You can't be right with God this way if you're not right with people this way. And he dives into that in Colossians chapter 3. Let's look at it beginning at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, and he's talking about clothing, immerse yourself in this, embrace this, not something to cover you up, but let it be your identity, as God's chosen ones. And anytime you hear that phrase, don't think of exclusivity. Instead, think of God saying, I want you. I want you. As God's chosen ones, holy, meaning your life is a life that I've claimed as my own to reflect who I am. And then he says, holy and beloved, dearly loved. I've set my heart on you. You are my much loved child. What is he saying? Here's my relationship to you. I want you. I've claimed your life as my own, and I'm crazy about you. That's where it all starts. Then let's take it a little bit further. He begins saying, now, because of that, I want you to put on, and here are the five things he talks about in these verses. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect Harmony. Let's take these one at a time. And I'm going to ask you a series of questions. I want you to write on some piece of paper, wherever you are, perhaps on your program, I want you to write down 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. All right? And for each one of these questions, I want, to, I want you to kind of assess yourself, kind of like on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being uh, not happening, 10 being nailed it. Okay? And so let's walk through these. This first one is compassion. Compassion means having an inner awareness and attentiveness to those closest to you in your life. It means having a soft heart, a heart that's open to the people around you that are closest to you, family and friends. So the question here for, for Paul that he's posing is this. He's saying, if you're going to be a devoted Christ follower, if you're going to be able to make disciples of others, this needs to be present in your life. Does your heart go out, not in a sentimental manner, but in a deep and sincere level of concern? 
So here's question number one. You evaluate yourself, number one. How sensitive are you to the needs of those around you? How sensitive are you to the needs of those around you? Those people that are closest to you, how sensitive are you, aware are you of their needs? Is your heart open or closed? Let's go to the second one. He says not only compassion, put on compassion, but he says to put on kindness. And the ideal here is carrying out acts of tender mercies. You take action. You get involved, however messy it is. You extend an act of grace. You bring relief into their lives. You don't add to their pain. You take their pain. I like the way one person put it. You take other people's part when life is tearing them apart. Here's the question. Evaluate yourself. Here it is. Do you bring grief or relief into the lives of others? Grief or relief into the lives of others. Compassion, clothe yourself with it. Kindness, and then he says humility. Humility here is not necessarily in the sense of C.S. Lewis definition where he says not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. What he's talking about is do you have an ongoing awareness in your own personal life of the needs of others because you see in them what you see in your own life. You see your own brokenness and your heart goes out to them. That you're constantly looking for ways to serve them. What humility means here is I have an awareness of my own sinfulness, the messiness of my own personal life, my own weakness, and I'm aware of that and I'm constantly depending upon God's grace in my life. Here's the question. How often do you evaluate your life in view of God's holiness in your personal sinfulness? You can't make disciples of others unless you are aware of your own brokenness and sinfulness and reminded of the fact that you live under the cross and you never forget what the cross means to you. And you're aware of it in your own personal life. Let's go to the next one. He says, meekness. Clothe yourself with meekness. When he's talking about meekness here, he's talking about not behaving or responding harshly or arrogantly in a tense situation, but in that moment you're tender without surrender. Rather than using your power that you have to crush or threaten, you keep that under control in those tense moments. So here's the question. How do you respond to irritating situations? How do you respond to irritating situations? Let's go a little bit further. He talks about patience. Patience is the willing endurance, refusing to give up on a person, but to continue to show a faithful loyalty to that person, even though it's difficulty or disappointing in terms of the results. You just keep at it. Here's the question. How Willing are you to go the extra mile and then some under pressure? How willing are you to do that? And he goes on and he adds to that. He says, forbearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other even as the Lord has forgiven you. Bear with each other. What does that mean? He takes it a little bit further. Put up with sandpaper people. 
The people in your world who rub you the long way, wrong way. The people that you would rashly never choose to be around our love. Anybody come to mind? <laughs> you pour yourself out for them. You realize that they are just as much a part of your life as the people who bring joy to your life. You see them as valuable and you don't try to push them out of your world and out of your life. And coupled with that forbearance, what makes forbearance possible is forgiveness. You have this capacity to release them instead of holding a grudge and isolated them. There is no I'm done with you attitude. Here's the question. How do you deal with difficult people? see some people looking around the room. It's not a good time to look around the room. And then in Colossians 3.14, what does he say? And over all of these, above all of these, put on love. Essentially, what he's saying is you have to choose to lead with love, which makes all the others possible. If there's no love, none of the other is possible. You have to choose. Love is not something that is that you're necessarily just going to come naturally and easily. You have to choose to lead with love, and when you do, all of this becomes possible. All of this becomes possible. Friday night, Gail and I slipped out, slipped out to see the new Mission Impossible Fallout movie. We slipped out to see it, and uh, you know how it always begins. This is your mission, and should you choose to accept it, by the way, just go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. Ethan saves the world with two seconds left to go. This is your mission if you choose to follow it. Here, what is Paul saying? Here's what you're called to be in Christ. This is your life. Are you willing to take it on? It seems like it's impossible, but this is who you're called to be. This is the life, the Jesus life. Let's take it a little bit further. Colossians 3, verses 15 and following. Few more questions, aren't you? Don't you love these questions? As you're doing a little self-assessment, how you how you coming? Let's begin verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. What is he saying there? He's saying, in your relationship to other people, the one thing that should dominate, be the deciding factor in terms of that relationship, is should be the peace of Christ an inner calmness that just breaks out of you into the lives of others and brings an inner calmness into their lives that allows them to see through you that they can rest in Christ just as you're resting in Christ, even though there's enormous pressure going on. You become an oasis for another person because they see the peace of Christ ruling in your life, becoming the deciding factor in your life, the predominant attitude and disposition in your life, and it permeates the lives of others. So here's the question. Do your actions and decisions create or help resolve conflict? Do they create or help resolve conflict? Paul is trying to say in your life, if you'll let peace, the peace of Christ, where you're held together, all worries and fears and all the doubts and everything else, it doesn't control you, but his inner peace controls you, so it holds you together, and in a world that is just so 
crazy filled with pandemonium, your life bleeds out into them and you bring peace and inner calmness. You don't stir up things. You don't agitate. Then he says, let the word of Christ, the message of Christ, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. When he says, let the word, he's talking about the message of Christ, the revealed message you talked about last week, let it dwell, not simply something that is in you as for, in terms of acquiring information, but let it be operative as a powerful force and influence. It's not merely present, it controlling influence in your life in such a rich way that it has its way in your life. That it has its way in your life. Let it be the controlling factor. And you do this, he says, in all wisdom and insight. It teaches. It also challenges. That's the admonished part. And how do you do this? As you sing to God in your hearts, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He's not talking about categories. He's just talking about the variety of ways you can do that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly through all of this manner of psalms, hymns, and songs in such a way that it swells up within you and it controls you and it has the predominant influence in your life. What is he saying there? This goes to something that had happened this morning. Is your worship beneficial to others? He's talking about worship here. He's saying that your life needs to be a, 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 a motivator to others to worship God because they see you worshiping and it bleeds out of your life in such a way that it causes other people in a contagious way to worship that God that same way. As I was in the audience this morning, I'm listening to the words, and all of a sudden there's this energy and there's this life, and all of a sudden it spoke to my life, and I promise you this afternoon I'll still hear the words of the song in my heart that continue to speak into my life. Your worship. And then what does he say? With gratitude in your hearts, just very quickly, he says, look, Let gratitude guard your heart. Let it be the overflow of your heart. Here's this question. Is there a growing sense of gratitude in your heart or one of complaint? Which is it? And then he comes to the final question that I want to, where we want to close today. Here's what he says, kind of summarizing the whole thing. And whatever you do, Whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What is he talking about? He's very clear as he wraps everything up. He's saying, if you want to know what the goal of discipleship is, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. If you want to know the life you're called to, this is at the heart of everything he's writing in this wonderful 95-verse letter. It's all about spiritual formation and maturity. Here it is. Here's the goal in a nutshell. Here it is. Do everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Name representing his character, his very life. Do everything, everything in his name. And in in that way, what he's saying is your temperament and your body and your mind 
With your life, let it reflect everything that you do, the very character of Jesus. How comprehensive is whatever you do? It's comprehensive. And in case you're looking for a loophole, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, no loopholes here, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's very serious about it. So here's the final question. And perhaps it's the most important one. Is the goal of your life to consistently reflect the character of Christ? To be the determining factor of all you do through which you filter every decision, every action. Ten questions. You're looking at all of those questions and you go back across them. And you're saying, I've got somebody in my life that God has brought. They've crossed the line of faith. I want to help them grow and mature in Christ. Well, the best way for you to do that is for you to experience the personal transformation in your life to where this becomes the asset test of your own personal spiritual progress. If this isn't happening in your life, you can't disciple anybody else. And by this, I'm not saying that you're going to get this right perfectly all the time. This is not about that. This is about saying there is this tension, and I'm never going to give up to this tension. I'm going to keep pursuing. I'm never giving in. There'll be days when I'm not forgiving. There'll be times when I'm not going to be open-hearted. There are going to be moments when the last thing I want to do is keep on extending grace to another person. The gold standard, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The platinum standard, you extend to other people the same grace Jesus did on the cross to you. What he's saying is, if you want to lead others into this Jesus life, then it's got to be so real in your personal life to where they see you're never giving up that pursuit for his life to become your life. And when that happens, People will start saying, they won't see your flaws, they'll see your passionate pursuit. And then there'll be days when they see the Jesus life flowing through your life and they'll say, so that's what it means to be a fully devoted Christ follower. That's it in a nutshell. Whatever you do, word or deed, do it all. In the name of Jesus, his life, his character. Wouldn't it be great someday for someone to look at you and they say, what's up? I see in you what I've never seen before. Tell me what's going on inside of you. Do you realize discipleship begins before people ever cross the line of faith? When they see in you the beauty, the shining greatness of Jesus coming through in your life and in mine. That's the power of it. That's the beauty of it. Just recently, I was with our three of our grandchildren. We were walking the streets of Louisville. And as we were walking to go get some ice cream, um, a homeless person came up and looked at me and asked if I could somehow or another reach out and give a hand. And I was all wrapped up in my grandkids, and we were having a fun time. We were going to get ice cream. And I paused there, and there was something within me said, in this particular instance, you take the time. So I 
left the family, and I walked with her down the way and went into a particular uh, restaurant, one of those fast food places, bought her some food, talked to her, had a conversation with her about the Lord, etc. And when I got back to where uh, my son and the grandkids were, one of their questions that they had asked Gail, my wife, where did, where did, and they call me Dudley, that's another story for another day, where did Dudley go? And explained, explained to them what I was doing and why I was doing it. The ice cream was great. But I hope they never forget what their grandmother explained to them. Wasn't Dudley being kind or being sentimental? That was Jesus at work in my life. And someday I want them to have that as a memory. So they'll remember what Jesus looks like. So I can be a disciple maker of my children and my grandchildren. That's the call. That's what it means. Whatever you do in word or deed. So where are you? In that pursuit, in that tension. Trying too hard, legalism, trying to check off all the boxes. That won't work. It'll ruin you. Too slack. Lower expectations. I guess this is as good as it gets. Give it up, walk away from it. Or I want to live with that tension. I will never know in this life what it means to be free from this pull over here. But I am pursuing knowing that one day, one day when Jesus comes, or when I leave this earth, I will be complete in him. I'm not giving up that pursuit. I'm not giving it up. Let's pray. Father, um, only you know what needs to be heard in each one of our individual lives, so filter out everything else and help us to hear the individual, personal, deep-hearted message we need to hear this morning. And as a community of faith, may this church constantly be about not just having people cross the line of faith and having Christ in their life, but pursuing the ultimate Jesus life of Christ becoming their life. May this church be known in Medford and beyond as I know and I have heard it said. May this be a church that's all about reflecting the beauty, the shining greatness of Jesus. In whose name we pray. And Father, we ask that if there be anyone here this morning, and I no doubt there are, who's still trying to figure out what the Jesus life is all about, hopefully they heard it this morning and they'll say, that's what I want. And they'll say yes, and they'll cross the line of faith today. We trust you in your good work that you will do even now. In your name.